The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. was originally Pastor Nick's idea. And uh, when he showed me the title of this book that inspired the series, a book called The Happy Christian, frankly, my first reaction was, man, that's just too frivolous, The Happy Christian. Man, how can we talk about happiness with all the personal challenges that some of you are facing with all the terrifying things happening around the world. Happiness sounds like it's for children. You know, how about something a little more uh, spiritually mature like joy? That just sounds more like it's adult, more spiritually rugged. But on Nick's recommendation, I read it. And I thought the author was saying some things about God, that I had not heard and that I needed. And I'm glad we're doing it. I asked my wife this past week, this is an honest thing. I asked her, darling, am I happy at home? I mean, am I, am I playful? Am I happy at home? Am I, like, enjoyable to be with? And she said, she thought about it for a little bit, and she said, yes, you are. Now, I didn't ask my staff that question. <laughs> and frankly, I'm a little concerned on what the answer might be. Sometimes I'm not happy at work. And that's something I'm working on. My personal goal for this year, this next several months and this end of this year, is that in every individual meeting, in every staff meeting, and every time I come up here to preach, that I bring energy to it. I not suck energy, but I bring energy. There are too many times at work that I'm super focused, I'm in a zone, I'm overly serious, um, I feel too much responsibility, I'm absorbing pressure that God has already promised He can handle. You know, the ironic thing is, is that I feel more, honestly, the ironic thing is, I feel more spiritual in that super serious place. I do. I feel more spiritual problem is, is that I also find myself quick to judge, overly critical, and frustration is stirring in my heart like a shaken up Coke can. Just the fizz right there, frustration, like just ready to, to, to burst out. That's not good fruit, regardless of how I feel about my spirituality. I'm having some paradigms busted through my study and my readings in this series. Like happiness and holiness are not two different things. And that one can be um, wildly happy and appropriately serious at the same time. How about you? How about you? How do you picture God? And do you ever picture him as happy? Or does that seem irreverent? A.W. Tozer says there's nothing more important in your life than what comes to your mind when you hear the word God. Man, I so agree with that. We become what we worship. Each of you possesses an artist gallery in your mind. The paintings there make up how you see the world. 
And we are far more persuaded by those emotion-laden images than we are rational arguments. And if you have not formed convictions about God from the Bible, then the pictures that presently hang there form your image of God. Those pictures include early experiences of your dad, your first male authority. If he was joyless or always angry, you will automatically cut and paste those beliefs onto God. They also include your early church experiences, where if reverence for God was overplayed, or if the pastor was overly somber, or if sin and judgment eclipsed the message of grace, then it will feel natural to you to picture a sterile, emotionless, detached God. I mean, even Hollywood, when it still made movies about Jesus, made him super spiritual with this otherworldly gaze about him. And far be it that Jesus would ever like laugh or smile or be happy. Those are the kinds of things that form our image. This morning is about allowing the Bible to inform your convictions. And there may be some pictures that you allow to hang in your gallery. There may be some you take down. There may be some new ones you put up. Well, let's take a moment and pray and ask God for help and wisdom in that process. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I believe that there is something very special, very powerful that you want to do in our hearts this morning. And I pray that each and every one of us would be able to put away whatever is distracting us and to focus and to recognize that that hunger that we think is for food or for uh, more entertainment or for some relationship, that really, that hunger is for you. It's something only you can satisfy. So, Father, take us to a place maybe where we, when we got here, weren't even willing to go. Make our hearts open and ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so what does the Bible say about the happiness of God? Here's the first thing I want to do. I want to share an implied truth. Something that's implied in the Bible. Now think about this. We pursue happiness, right? We pursue happiness by pursuing pleasure. We draw pleasure from a person or an activity or a thing. We enjoy spending time with a friend, going to a movie or playing fantasy football. By the way, if you're checking on your team right now, please stop. I know it's almost 1 o'clock. You have your, your, eye, your phone open and you think it's Scripture. It better be Scripture. Now, in the English language, to delight in something or someone is a more emphatic description of pleasure. And we might define delight this way, as drawing, delight is drawing immense pleasure, immense pleasure, from a person or thing. And God finding delight is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. The word delight shows up 110 times in Scripture, mostly 
in the Old Testament. The related word, to please, shows up about 350 times. Now, the root meaning of delight comes from ancient Persia. And the word was used, surprise, surprise, to describe a man adoring the beauty of a woman. And embodied in that word was a personal care, attraction, attention. And so when God delights in us, it carries with it a likability factor. We are attractive to him. He is attentive. And he is committed to care for us. Now let me give you just a quick survey of what God delights in. Things that God delights to do. Okay, I'm just going to run through these fairly quickly. It's about 25 different things. Number one, God delights to lead his people. Secondly, God delights to prosper his people. Thirdly, he delights to rescue us. God delights in the godly in the land. He delights to give us peace. God delights in us walking in his will. God delights to give us victories. God delights when we speak truth to ourselves. He delights in sacrifice from a right heart. He delights in those who fear him. He delights in his people. He delights in fair business practices. Interesting. He delights in blameless character. He delights in the prayers of those with a pure heart. He delights in Jesus. He delights in healing and restoring his people. He delights both individually and corporately. He delights in love, justice, and righteousness. He delights in us by rejoicing over us and singing over us. And he delights in showing steadfast love. It's quite a list. Let's drill down for a moment on one of those from the prophet Zephaniah 3, verse 17. This is a great verse, a beautiful verse, an amazing verse. It challenges our picture of God. The author sees a moment in history where God's people will be restored. And he says this, The Lord your God is with you, a mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. It's a good thing. But, amen. But will rejoice over you with singing. God's enthusiasm for his people is abounding. Look, even delight alone, even immense pleasure can't capture it. He has to insert an additional adjective. It's great delight. Great delight. And we see from this that joy and love are God's essential character. Before all eternity, what defined God's character was joy and love. Anger and correction are temporary. They will be done. God is so very happy to do us good. He delights in it. Several years ago, at a, at a little critical time in my marriage, I went shopping for a new ring on Valentine's Day for my wife. 
Now, this is a little out of character for me, honestly. Um, you know, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch, which is thrifty. My wife is Japanese, which is thrifty. So we don't really spend a lot of money like on jewelry. And, um, but we were at a certain place in our marriage where I wanted to sort of break the mold a little bit. And so I went out and got her a really nice ring. We hadn't spent a lot on our rings. I'd be ashamed to even tell you what we spent on our rings on our, on our, uh, for our engagement. And uh, so I had so much fun doing this, shopping. And because I'm not a jewelry person and not a shopper either, I had to ask a lot of questions and went to different stores. And I planned it all out, and I had it sitting there with some roses and so forth in the morning. And she had no idea. I pulled it off. And just the joy that morning of seeing her face and her feeling, again, the fresh assurance of my love for her was just such a beautiful thing. And indeed, it was one of the highlights of that year. That's how God is. That's just a little small picture of how God is. You have done that for one another. You've done that for your children. You felt that immense joy. There you're getting a little picture of the way that God is. The way that he delights in us. And by the way, he delights in us long before we perform for him. One thing I like to tell people is that, you know, do you think God loved you when you were two or three or four years old? And a lot of us think, well, yeah, when I was two, three, or four, I was really innocent and so forth and didn't sort of know or do the things that I do now. Now I feel like I've eaten the forbidden fruit. I know good and evil. But, hey, three and four, I was innocent. Sure, God loved me. Do you know that God loves you as much today as he did when you were three or four? God loves you as much today, long before you could perform or do anything for him. Because he delights in you. You know, for my own children, I have a, just a basic core delight in them that rises above anything they say or do. Sure, there, may, there is additional joy, and yes, there is additional delight when I find that they embrace the right values, and that does increase the capacity for joy and delight. But there is just, at a, at a, at a fundamental level, a delight in them because they are my children. They came from me. This is a little picture of the way that God is. I heard a story uh, recently here about a woman who uh, went through child abuse uh, sexually, or sexually, sexual abuse as a child. And as a result of that, she developed an eating disorder. She binged. And she was able to effectively hide that her whole life until she got married. And after a few months into the marriage... Her husband called her, and they were poor at that time, and uh, this wasn't us, but they were also poor, like most couples are when they're beginning, and she was just like a volcano, just swallowing ramen noodles, and her husband saw her. Her husband caught her. In that moment, this is what he did. He went to the pantry, he pulled out a bag of chips, and he opened them, and he began to eat them. And he said, I see what you're doing. I see that you're binging. And I don't want you to have to do it alone. This woman describes this moment as being the moment that changed her life. Because she saw through her husband, what? The steadfast love of God. A God who loves us steadfastly. 
Not a God who just loves us when we perform well. That wouldn't be steadfast love. But a God who loves us when we feel like we're the least lovable. He delights in it. He delights in steadfast love. What do we gain from this first point? What do we gain? God is drawing immense pleasure from his people. When you draw pleasure pleasure from a relationship, what does it make you? It makes you happy. God delights in us, which means we can make him happy. And so from his response to his people, we learn an implied truth that God has an infinite capacity for happiness. And while there are scriptures that indicate God delights in his vast physical creation, our little survey showed us what? What is God's primary delight? It's not creation. It's people. It's you and me. So that's the first answer to our question. An implied truth. Now, secondly, when answering this question, what does the Bible say about the happiness of God? There is a plain truth, a simple truth. The Bible describes God as happy. But we have to dig a little bit in order to get there. Two times in the New Testament, and I want to cite uh, Randy Alcorn here in his excellent book on happiness uh, as as, uh, unfolding this research. Twice in the New Testament, in the Apostle Paul's letters to Timothy, he has reason to focus on the character of God. In each case, he uses a word that translators translate blessed. For example, verse 11 in chapter 1, Paul is describing the purpose of the law. He says this, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, With which I have been entrusted. And in verse 15 in chapter 6, in referring to Jesus' second coming, he says, Which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, Randy Alcorn points out that in every major Greek lexicon, this word is translated, this word blessed is defined as. Pertaining to be happy, fortunate, happy, supreme happiness. Yet that simple word, the simple meaning is buried beneath the more super spiritual sounding word, blessed. Now Alcorn quotes a number of scholars here to, to, uh, to reinforce his point. For example, A.T. Robertson, a scholar writing in the early 19th century, wrote this about these verses. He said, we have a happy God, a happy ruler, altogether happy and altogether powerful. John Piper, a a contemporary scholar, translates verse 11 to say, the gospel is the good news of the glory of the happy God. Piper comments that this is the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word is applied to God, as if to say, this is not just any God, but this is the happy God. What a radical statement that must have been in the ancient world where Stoicism and the volatile Greek gods and the mystery religions held sway over the people. Charles Spurgeon, 
said of this same verse, the gospel is the gospel of happiness. It is called the glorious gospel of the blessed God. A more correct translation, Spurgeon says, would be the happy God. Again, Piper says this about these verses. A great part of God's glory is his happiness. It was inconceivable to the Apostle Paul that God could be denied infinite joy and still be all glorious. To be infinitely glorious was to be infinitely happy. He used the phrase, the glory of the happy God, because it is a glorious thing for God to be happy as he is. God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond our wildest imagination. Now, there's an indirect truth about the happiness of God, and there's the plain, simple truth of the writers describing God this way. So the question resonates with us. What difference does this make? What does this mean then for me? How does this change me? Well, very simple. Because God wants to share his happiness with us. That's why. To become more holy is to become more happy. There is not a false choice between the two, a false dichotomy between the two. Indeed, we may have to redefine happiness. We may have to redefine happiness. He will not make us happy on our terms, if you think that's what I'm saying. You see, the happiness he gives is on his terms. Not because he's tight-fisted or egotistical, but because that is the only true happiness. He can't give another happiness. It's not there. The happiness on your terms is a mere child's game compared to his. Like making mud pies in a slum when you could have a holiday at the sea, as C.S. Lewis said. You see, the truth is it's we who are tight-fisted. Hanging on to that one small thing we are convinced will give us happiness. Like Gollum holding on to the ring, even while it corrodes your soul. Your ring might be wealth, it might be a person, it might be a job, it might be sex or fantasized sex, or it might be an image of yourself. And you squeeze it so tight that you'll eventually lose it. It controls you. It is unforgiving. It demands everything but gives so little in return. In our corrupted thinking, we think that's what God is like. That's not what God is like. That's what idols do, not God. You see, God's goal, if we could go back to the garden for a moment, back to the beginning, God's goal in creating us is that we might bear his image. Thus, if God is faithful... We bear his image by keeping our promises. If God is holy, we bear his image when we think and act with selfless purity. If God is love, we bear his image when we place someone else's needs above our own. And if God is happy because he finds joy in his excellent nature and his works... 
then we also bear his image when we rejoice in his excellent nature and his works. Look at Psalm 36, verse 5. Psalm 36, verse 5. The psalmist finds reasons to reflect on God's character and his soul soars as he envisions God's happiness. Verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Wow. Wow, what a passage. What a passage. Now, a respected scholar from a different age, Albert Barnes, said this. Six very simple things about these verses. Number one, he concludes God is happy. Number two, religion makes man happy. Number three, his happiness is of the same kind or nature as of God's. Number four, that this happiness is satisfying in its nature or that it meets the real wants of the soul. Number five, it's abundant and leaves no want of the soul unsupplied. And number six, that this happiness is closely connected with the public worship of God. America's most famous theologian from the 1700s, he's most famous, lived in the 1700s, is Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards believed this as well. He said that God extends his happiness to his children, writing this about his children. They have a fountain of infinite good for their comfort and contentment and joy. He is also an infinite fountain of love, yea, an ocean of love without shore or bottom. Wow. Wow. Now we pastors, myself included, have sometimes set the two aspirations, happiness and holiness, against one another like fighters in a ring. You have to choose one or the other. But it doesn't have to be that way. Randy Alcorn tells the following story, and I wonder if you might be able to relate to this. Here's the story. He says, a teenage boy came to me with questions about his faith. He attended all church all of his life, but now had some doubts. I assured him that even the writers of the Bible sometimes struggled. He wasn't questioning any basic Christian beliefs. He didn't need six evidences for the resurrection. So I talked with him about happiness and holiness. What does God's holiness mean, I asked. He gave the clear biblical answer. He's perfect, without sin. Absolutely true. Then I asked, does thinking about God's holiness draw you to him? He responded sadly, no. I asked him whether he wanted to be holy 100% of the time. No. I replied, me neither. I should, but I don't. I don't, 
Then I, uh, I'm sorry, me neither, I should, but I don't. Then I surprised him. Guess what you do want 100% of the time? He didn't know. And so I asked him, have you ever once thought, I don't want to be happy? No. Isn't that what you really want, I said, happiness? His expression said, guilty as charged. Friendships, video games, sports, academics, every activity, every relationship played into his desire to be happy. But I could see he felt this longing was unspiritual. So I told him that the word translated blessed in the first Timothy passages speaks of God being happy. And I asked him to memorize those verses, replacing blessed God with happy God. Then I asked him to list whatever points him to God's happiness. Backpacking, music, playing hockey, favorite foods, I said, you know, God could have made food without flavor, but he's a happy God. And he's created a world full of happiness. That means you can thank him for macaroni and cheese, for music, for ping pong, and above all, for dying on the cross so you can know him and be forever happy. The boy had seen Christianity like this, and I wonder if some of you do the same. He saw the Christian faith as a list of things he should do that wouldn't make him happy and a list of things he shouldn't do that would make him happy. I just want to tell you that's not the Christian faith. That is not the Christian faith. It's upside down. Now, let me just finish here by asking some questions that may come to your mind as you think about a happy God. Number one, is God holy? Yes, he is. Is God angry over injustice? Yes, he is. Will God judge sin? Yes, he will. Does God weep with us when the fallen world crashes into us, bringing disease or natural disaster? Does God weep with us? Yes, he does. God is all those things. But the Bible also teaches us that God is exceedingly happy. He has an infinite capacity for joy and happiness. But how could that be? I mean, how could that really be? How can God watch a typhoon hit Thailand or see a grave of innocent people fill up in Syria and feel any shred of happiness? Isn't that detached? Isn't that unloving? Does God turn off his emotions as we do when watching another tragedy unfold on the news? Is he dispassionate like a doctor who simply does not have the capacity to weep with his suffering patients? To think about this, we must look at the entire witness of Scripture relating to who God is. God does see, and God does know, and God is all present everywhere. He sees all things. He knows all things. And God can both respond to the needs of those who cry out to him and feel the pain of loss. We must remember that God is not like us. God sees the end of his plans. God sees the redemption of all things. The day when a new humanity 
will be perfectly fitted to him, to one another, and to the physical creation. And he rejoices that good will triumph over evil and mercy over judgment. There is a mystery and greatness to him that we simply cannot fathom. In his infinite wisdom, God is able to unite together these emotions we find contradictory. He holds them together in perfect rhythm, and they are perfectly displayed at the right time and in the right way, always appropriate to the need. We see that, by the way, in the life of Jesus. So these two qualities... I conclude, happiness and holiness are not two boxers in the ring fighting it out until one is defeated. Rather, the happiness of God and the holiness of God are inseparable. And it can be in us as well. We are not left with a false choice of choosing happiness versus God, true happiness versus God. If we can grow more holy grow to become more like Christ, we will find our capacity for true happiness growing along with it. In one of Jesus' famous parables, the invitation is given to those who invest their talents well at the end of life. And in six words, Jesus says what it has taken me almost 40 to do. That's why he's Jesus and I'm, I'm not. Do you remember those six words he said that basically encapsulate what I've shared this morning? Those who've invested their talents well, facing at the end of the life, what does Jesus say to them? Do you know? Yeah, just say it. What's he say? Come and share your master's happiness. Come and share your master's happiness. Nick, you guys can work work your way up. We begin this journey. We begin this journey towards hearing those words by first affirming in our hearts that Christ has opened the door to us to God through what he did on the cross. Jesus took on our humanity. He absorbed in his person our sin, the debt the sin debt that we owed. And we continue to affirm in our hearts the real life raising of Jesus from the dead, which proved he was the Son of God and that God accepted the sacrifice that Christ made. Christ thus offers us eternal life, life in him, his happiness as a free gift And what is left for us is to receive this gift, to believe in Christ, and to become, in that moment, based on his promise, sons or daughters of God. You can do that this morning. Will you accept that invitation this morning? Jesus Christ saying, come and share your master's happiness. If so, today could be the very first time that you receive the bread and the cup. The bread and the cup is what we call communion, the remembrance of communion. Rich earlier mentioned baptism. Baptism and communion are the two things that God initiated for us to uh, sustain and to nourish and to keep our promise to him. On the day of baptism, you made a pledge to God. 
in communion, we renew that promise, but also God renews his promise to us. God renews his promise to us that he will never leave or forsake us. And when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we are renewing that promise for us to follow Jesus Christ every day to the end of our days, all of our lives. And we remember his promise to you and me, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will forgive you. All the promises are ours through Jesus Christ. What's going to happen here in a moment is you'll be released row by row. Come forward, take the bread and take the cup and take it back to your seat and then we'll take it all together collectively as a body of Christ.